It's called The Doctrines of Grace and uh, known by another name of uh, sometimes the points of Calvinism. Uh, we talked a little bit about why that's not the greatest name, but um, we're going to continue our discussion tonight, but, uh, which by the way, if on your table you didn't have enough sheets, we do have extra ones in the back, so if you do need a sheet, Ben is back there, you can just pop a hand up uh, to follow along and we can make sure uh, you get one of those so that you can follow along tonight. Um, <clears throat> So these five doctrines that are included in the, what's called the doctrines of grace, uh, I mentioned last week that they kind of uh, fit together uh, like a chain, if you will, or you know, strings of pearls, some might put it, um, which might seem a strange thing, a pearl, to say about the doctrine we spoke about last week that I just want to touch on again before we continue tonight, because they build off of one another, or maybe a better way to put it is what we're going to talk about tonight is not only something we see in Scripture, but is a, a logical outworking of what we spoke about last week, which was the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity, where we basically answered the question, what, what really is sin and how much has it impacted human beings? What is depravity? Um, and we'll find that the answer to that is, as we looked at last week, a little more grim than we would be comfortable with because it really has impacted us, as uh, Mike used a really helpful word this morning, in a pervasive way. That's what total in total depravity means, that we are not all equally bad or as bad as we possibly can be, but we are all so completely or pervasively affected by sin that we cannot and we will not take steps toward God without him first doing something in us. Now remember, we said this doesn't mean that you are or have been or will in the future be the absolute worst version of you that you are capable of being. But it's simply a way of measuring the degree to which sin has impacted our minds, our bodies, our wills, uh, in such a negative way that has impacted that ability to respond to God. So it's complete, absolute. Some of the other uh, expressions we use, if you guys want to put this up, is pervasive depravity. I think I said to uh, total depravity last week, but complete corruption or absolute inability. This is one in the Crossland's course we said was helpful because it speaks to that idea of uh, not being able to move towards God unless he first moves towards us. Now the reason these things, while well, we started here, because if we land here, if you remember we said, um, you know, we're, we're dead in our sins and our transgressions. How dead? And if we say we are not just mostly dead, but dead, dead, completely dead, once we've established that, it follows with this next, regarding our salvation. If that is true, this whole idea of total depravity, then salvation is not dependent on individuals choosing God, but rather on the completely independent choice of individuals by God. I'm just going to repeat that because that's really where we're heading tonight. I'm going to give it a name in just a moment. Salvation, if we believe in total depravity, as we outlined it in the scriptures last week that I just reviewed, salvation is therefore not dependent upon individuals such as you and I choosing God but rather on the completely independent choice of individuals by God. Historically this is kind of my own summation of a doctrine called unconditional election. 
or another way of putting it, is independent choice. We're going to talk about God's choosing of people unto salvation. We're going to see what was the basis of that. Was it conditioned on something or was it completely unconditional, him freely doing it? Now, when we come to this doctrine, inevitably, there's probably somebody in the room prior to today or right now who's saying, oh no, I really wish we wouldn't talk about this because this is just one of those doctrines that we would get into it. It's just complicated and divides people and maybe, you know, I think if we really understand it, people won't share the gospel and all these other things. So I want to let you in on a secret that you might not be fully aware of and that is this. All Christians believe in election. Okay? All Christians believe in election. The key issue is this. Is it conditional or is it unconditional? Meaning, is God doing it in response to something outside of himself or is he doing it independently by his own goodwill? So we're going to look in our first passage tonight as we start to answer some of this in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to have it up on the screen, but if you want to turn in your Bibles, that's fine. I'm going to turn there myself just so I have it in front of me. First, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, where he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So here the Apostle Peter opens up an epistle that he's written and he's addressing God's people as elect. He says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So what does that word mean? That expression Um, of according to foreknowledge. Doesn't this make things sound like God's choice is dependent on something that he knows ahead of time? Now some will make the case saying that God's choice is depending on what he knows he'll see in us ahead of time, that people will have faith or foresee, foresee something they'll do. But while that sounds like a reasonable concept of God for knowing something, it kind of makes God's choice start veering in on something meaningless. Because if God, part of this goes back to our discussion in Doctrine 1 about God's attributes. If you were here then, we talked about God's omniscience. And in a strictly theological speaking way, God doesn't know anything ahead of time. God knows all things completely independent of time. God cannot act in any way other than with having all knowledge of all things all the time. So he can't look and say, hey, I wonder what's going to happen in 2024. Okay, so I'm going to choose that one. Because his knowledge is total, absolute, complete, instantaneous. He's never learned Anything. That's the key phrase. God has never gained in knowledge. And so when we start talking about this idea of foreknowledge, in this sense, you're going to see that it it almost makes God's choice meaningless because it becomes dependent on human choice. And so God's saying, yeah, 
<laughs> it kind of sounds like secondary school dating, doesn't it? If, you know, if you choose me, I'll choose you, right? I, you know, and what's the note and who's choosing who and all that kind of stuff. But this is why our understanding of depravity is a defining issue. Because if we're mostly dead or completely dead. Because if we're completely dead, if we take total depravity to mean total inability, that we cannot and will not take steps towards God unless uh, God does something in us first, well, what faith would there be for God to foresee? If we won't of our own accord take step towards him anyway, he cannot see what we would do in that sense. What good could merit his decision? We start veering into a model with God serving and responding to human beings in salvation rather than being glorified as a result of him being the one who takes that initiative towards us. A God-centered gospel, as uh, one author put it, his name's Will Metzger. He's written a great book on evangelism that I love. And he says this, In a God-centered gospel, grace is central. God is exalted at every point in the outworking of it from its design in all eternity through its outworking in Christ and its application to people. Our king, get this, our king is assured of a kingdom and will neither be frustrated by human resistance nor obligated to save his creatures because of their supposed rights to his favor. God's not obligated. I think we can have this sense of, as autonomous human beings, you know, for modern human beings that we are, we think that we have absolute autonomy. You can be whatever it is you want to be. You're the master of your own destiny. All these other things. And in, this is arguing against that. That God is not sitting idly by saying, I hope they say yes. That he's not sitting by idle thinking, well, you know, we can just kind of um, impose upon him to, to wait on us. So what then is an alternative understanding of this idea of foreknowledge that maintains God's initiative in salvation? I want us to turn to another passage of Scripture as we attempt to, to answer that. And that's in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 29 and 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Paul's writing here and he says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So as we see this word here, albeit being used by a different biblical writer, but putting a different angle on it, that God's foreknowledge is less of an issue of prior awareness like ooh i knew you were going to do that <laughs> and more a matter of prior relationship prior knowing of someone see he says he foreknew those he would choose it says those he foreknew not what he foreknew. And knowledge is used in the Bible in a very relational way. It's used of a man and a woman in marriage. It's God says of Israel among all peoples of the earth, I have known you. 
So this idea of knowing is a relational word in Scripture. And the understanding of foreknowledge in this way makes God's choice completely independent and meaningful. And if we go back to the verse at the end of verse 30, it makes sense that it says those whom he foreknew, when we think of it in that way, it makes foreknowing and choosing nearly identical. And he says, those he foreknew, he predestined them. What did he do? He called them. He justified them. It's this thread that goes all the way through. And so this is the idea of when we think of, again, what I mean all Christians, I mean different schools of doctrine, if you want to put it that way, that understand different teachings of the Bible differently, particularly on this one that we're talking about. When I say what we're talking about is the doctrines of grace, which traditionally is called Reformed theology, Calvinistic theology, which can be taken to a hyper degree, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. But there's also different branches that would somewhat take, take difference with what I'm sharing with you um, tonight. But the reality is, is both believe in this concept of election, It's just, is it dependent upon God's choice or human choice? And I think as we go through the entirety of Scripture, I went back in my mind to our Bible overview, you know, of God and Abraham making this promise that he would bless all nations through this one man ultimately coming down to his seed through Jesus, which is the gospel and then what we're looking at. We have evidence from the beginning that God was choosing how he would do this and doing it in an unconditional way. Even the way he made the covenant with Abram, the way he passed through, if you remember at that time, he, he had the different halves of the, um, of the animals and the way they would make a covenant and the parties would pass through, but God did it alone. Speaking of the unconditional way in which he would bring the fulfillment of the promise to pass. And this thread of a, there's no human contribution to God's plan to bless and to deliver becomes apparent. If we continue in Romans chapter 9, we see this develop even further. Because in Romans 9, we see how the Apostle Paul kind of plays this thread out of God's promise to bless through Abraham through to the gospel. And in Romans 9, there's several examples that I would say corkscrew. You know, there's a ways that planes land in a, in a war zone, I've been told, when, the, when it's contested, they, they corkscrew down as opposed to come in straight like this. They start high and they narrow it in deeper as they, as they go down. And that's what I think Paul is doing here. With each pass, so we arrive at a clear point. He, he kind of corkscrews around this issue that God's choice is freely his to make as a demonstration of his mercy. We can't escape the element of God's free and independent choice as we look at how his plan of salvation worked out through the descendants of Abraham. So look at Romans uh, 9, chapter 9, verse 6. He says this. It's not as though God's word had failed. So he's talking about how um, not all Israel has responded in faith to Jesus. And he says it's not as though God's word had failed, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. 
And so in this first example, you see the choice of Isaac as the child of promise. You remember, God had promised, I will bless all nations through you and your descendants. And it had taken a while for that descendant to come along. And so Abraham and his wife decided to help God along. And she gave him her maidservant, Hagar. And they had a, a child, Abraham and her, together. And God says, wait, no, no, no. Ishmael is not the child of promise. Isaac is. And so God's choice of Isaac entailed passing by Ishmael. Isaac was the miracle baby. <laughs> right? We said how this pointed forward to Jesus. That he was the baby who came to them in their old age. That it was like near, you know, <laughs> beyond all possibility of, of human conception that this would happen. Why? To show that it was God's doing. His initiative, God's choice could not be coordinated. It's not like he came along and said, oh, Abraham, what do you think? It couldn't be controlled by the will and efforts of human beings. And so as the passage goes on, it says, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated at the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. That son being Isaac. So God's choice was not dependent on physical descent, but on an unconditional promise that he gave to Abraham. So God's choice is the determining factor, even as we see this plan of salvation developing to bring blessing. So that was example one. We see God's choice in Isaac. What about Example two, as the descendants go on into Jacob, as we continue the passage in verse 10, it says this. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau have I hated. So again, this is the situation. Um, Abraham's descendant Isaac, now married to Rebekah. There's, there's two children in her womb. And it says that the, the older will serve the younger. So, so God wasn't constrained in his choice by cultural norms and that the path of inheritance and blessing culturally should have come through Esau. But God says, no, <laughs> I'm going to choose and it's going to come through um, Jacob. And God's choice took place before they were even born. So he wasn't constrained by cultural norms or what people would think. God's choice took place before they were even born. So their, their will and their actions had nothing to do with anything. And it says, this is the key phrase. He did this in order that God's purpose in election might stand. That God's purpose in election might stand. That it would be by grace. Chosen by grace, that God was not obligated. Grace, God giving us something we don't deserve. And so this idea of being chosen by grace, a remnant, if you will, Paul picks up on as he continues, 9, 10, and 11 of Romans kind of 
thread together. As he gets to chapter 11, he says this. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. By and large, Israel as a nation did reject the good news that Jesus brought of the kingdom. But he, Paul says there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Well, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. So Israel failed to establish or to have righteousness. If you go through the book of Romans at the beginning, Paul basically introduces this idea that human beings need righteousness. A righteousness is revealed in the gospel and all of us are lacking righteousness on our own. (laughs) We are depraved. And it's through the gospel that we have that. And he says, Israel failed to establish this standing before God because they sought it on their own terms, by their own efforts and merit. But there was a remnant that did obtain this righteousness on the basis of what? Being chosen by God. Now this is, again, this challenges the categories of our modern thinking. We don't think this is reality. This is, we think we're in control. <laughs> but it also, on the positive side, we see that there were those who were chosen by grace. And if we, we, if we by experience know that we have responded to that grace and we kind of revel in that fact, that's wonderful. But it introduces us to a related concept to this doctrine of election that is a bit more difficult pill for us to swallow. And that is the flip side of it. And it's what we call reprobation. And while this is a difficult dynamic of the doctrine of election, it is one we need to grapple with because it is something that is clearly portrayed in Scripture. So let's go back to Romans 9. If you want to flip back there, if you're in your Bible, that's fine. It will be on the screen. And we see this dynamic. So it was, we, we had it up just a moment ago. You guys don't have to go back. But it says at the end of that, there others were hardened. And this is the second time now, or an additional time, that Paul uses this. Because in Romans 9, where I just had you turned, it speaks of Pharaoh. And Paul, continuing the discussion we had earlier, says it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So you see in this passage, he says it's, it's not dependent upon human desire. What we choose, what we will, our effort, but on God's mercy and on his choice. And here he says of Pharaoh that he hardened his heart. We saw this when Mike went through Exodus. We looked at Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart and then God hardening his heart. There's two dynamics at work here. We're going to pick this up and develop it as we look at the ministry of Jesus because we see this in John's gospel. Uh, In the earthly ministry of Jesus, you remember he performed miracles and people would still not 
believe. And John's gospel explains some of the dynamics of that in chapter 12, verses 39 and 40. It says, for this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. So, there's a similarity to election here, but it's not identical. And I want to just point out why that's the case. Because it's, um, it's not like election just to the opposite effect that God is doing here. God, yes, as we go through and we've, we've looked at passages of Scripture tonight, there's, I'm just giving you a taste of them, by the way. I could give you a, a list of many other verses you could go through on your own. But God chooses to elect some. And he does so without any contribution on our part. It's completely independent. It is unconditional. It is an act of his, of his mercy. We've not done a thing to contribute to it. But in passing by others, because that is the implication, by choosing some, what is he doing? Passing by others. Not choosing them. What is he doing there that is different? He allows them to receive the judgment they receive for what they have done. There's a a significant distinction in that. That it's in election, God's saying to us, it's not based on anything you have done. I freely do it out of my mercy. In terms of reprobation, it's a a consigning over (laughs) and a passing by to allow us to receive judgment apart from Christ for what we have done. Now you can say, that's not fair. But we can't accuse God of injustice in this. Absolute justice, if we really wanted to go there, would mean that no one escapes. That's what absolute justice would mean. None of us have a right to heaven. Just the opposite. And God is not obligated to save. But he does. Why? We're going to see for the praise of his glory. It's a demonstration of his mercy. But, you know, there's some questions that come up with election. And I hope you're grappling with them. If you walk out of here tonight saying, got this election thing down, probably not. One, because I'm not an ace theologian. And two, this this stretches the capacity of our minds to to deal with. But the questions that I've always dealt with and many others in, in different times over the years is, why doesn't God then show mercy to everyone? Have you ever wondered that, if you believe this? Why doesn't God show mercy to everyone? Could he? Well, it depends on what he's seeking to accomplish. We have this tendency, because of our depravity, to think this vast universe, or even just our small little corner of it, revolves around us (laughs) and how we feel and what we think and what we do. But God's agenda is far more grand 
and sublime. In Romans chapter 9, verse 22, speaking of hardening of Pharaoh's heart and this idea of injustice, Paul says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called. There's this thread coming again. Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. I was reading something this week that commented on this, saying this, that this means that God considers the display of his attributes to be worth the whole drama of human history. To be worth creation, the fall, election, reprobation, and everything else. Because from God's point of view, the revelation of his glory, meaning the revelation of all his glorious attributes, that is the grand priority. That's what matters. That's why, and that's where we start, and that's just a... um, a good place for our mind to to tether and anchor not only with this issue of election but as we deal with suffering as we deal with evil we stop and take a step back and realize that God doesn't look at the world the way you and I do he sees it completely different from a completely different set of priorities and We are blessed when our hearts and our thinking and our lives align with his. That's why we cover doctrine. (laughs) That's why we want to know what the, the pages of scripture actually teach us. So that question of why doesn't God show mercy to everybody, hopefully we've answered that to some extent. But perhaps an even more personal question. Will God show mercy to me? Or to put it another way, am I one of the elect? How can I know? This is an easy one, (laughs) in a sense. How can you know? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's how you will know. That's what Charles Spurgeon used to say about the great great, uh, British preacher in London uh, from Essex, where we have connections now with Matt and others. But um, he used to say, you know, how do we know who to share the gospel with? You know, who are the elect? And he says, well, if I could walk around London and lifting up people's shirts and see a yellow stripe on their back and know that that means they're one of the elect, I'd share it with them. But I don't know, and so I share it with everybody. And as people respond, guess what? Revealing God's what? Choice of them. That's how we know. That's how you can know. That's how it can be affirmed in your life. If you're feeling like, man, I I just don't know if God, if this was real. Well, you know, if, if you see the Spirit at work in your life in conforming you more to the image of Jesus, because remember, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And we can have confidence of his choice of us by the gospel transformation that happens in our life. Not that we're perfect, not that we're sinless, but that we are sinning less and being more conformed to the image of Jesus. Will God show mercy to me? Of course he will. 
That's what he has purposed to do. If you respond to him, it reveals his choice of you. And just one last thought, because I've heard this a lot from lots of quarters. Doesn't this doctrine discourage a sense of urgency in proclaiming the gospel? Because, I mean, if God's going to save whom he's going to save, what's the big deal? And actually, I want to tell you, the effect should be just the opposite. It should strengthen our confidence and boldness in sharing the gospel if we understand it. Because in his plan, God not only chooses some to salvation, but he also chooses that the proclaiming of the gospel is what he'll use to bring them to life. So we should never be passive because when we have challenges in the New Testament that we are to proclaim his his, uh, his mercies, that we're to share the gospel, sow that seed, it is with this confidence. There are people out there, perhaps even in this room, whose hearts will be responsive to that word because he's chosen them. They're his. I can't tell you the confidence that gave me as a church planter in Wisconsin. Instead of standing up before a crowd and thinking, you know, man, I got to build this church. I got to make things happen. I got to do this. I got, would you please respond to Jesus? Instead, I stood up as ambassador of Jesus and said, put your faith in him. He doesn't wait on you. He's a king. Respond to him. He's offering you his mercy. It gives us boldness. So we should never be passive, nor should we allow how we do it to become irrelevant. I was thinking of this this afternoon, and the same writer of Romans, the Apostle Paul, also wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And here in one level, in Romans chapter 9, he's saying of, of God's choice, of his election, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Now he's not getting his theology mixed up here because he wrote both. <laughs> okay? I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Did you catch all the alls? I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means. He didn't step back and say, God's going to choose who's God's going to choose, so I don't have to do a thing. I can be dull in my presentation of the gospel. I can walk into a foreign land and speak my own language, and if they don't respond, well, they must be not chosen. That would be ridiculous. And so when we think of this, here the Apostle Paul who said, look, God has chosen his elect. 
and they will come to him. They will respond to the sharing of the gospel, but because it's a glorious gospel, we dare not present it in a haphazard, nonchalant, irrelevant way to the hearts and minds of of people because he's ordained the means as well. All things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. I wonder if we made that our mantra (laughs) individually. Why? For the sake of the gospel that we can share in its blessings. There was a, I'll close with this, there was a a young, uh, a young man, relatively speaking, um, who felt a compulsion for those um, around the world at the time that he lived who had not heard of Jesus. He lived in this nation and uh, he held to these doctrines that I was speaking of tonight and felt that there should be innovative efforts to cross the seas and take the gospel to those who had not heard that they might respond in faith. And one man said to him, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. Just curb your enthusiasm, okay? When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. May it never be. (laughs) That is a view of God's sovereignty in choosing us that goes way beyond what Scripture says. I have heard people say to me, I have no responsibility to share the gospel because if God wants to save people, he will. Yes, he will. But he uses people. He uses the proclaiming of his word. This same man, if you guys put up the last slide there, William Carey was his name, went as a missionary to India. And again, this was one of his famous sayings. Again, understanding what he held to, what I was speaking of tonight about God's choosing. He said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Notice the order of those. It wasn't attempt great things for God and then expect God to come through for you. Right? He said expect great things from God. Why? Because this is God's plan to build his kingdom. It's an inheritance for us. Expect it. Proclaim the gospel. Expect God to work. And if you're expecting him to work, then you can attempt great things for him. There are yet greater things that God wants to do through us. There are more people who need to come into the kingdom. We exist as a church to invite all people into an ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. They're out there. God's chosen them. What will we do? All things, all people, so that by all means, some of them might be saved, that we might share in the gospel's blessing. another group who wouldn't have been Calvinists, so I just want to be clear on that. The Moravians, who as they went overseas, said this. May the lamb who was slain receive the recompense for his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the recompense for his suffering. And what is that? Those whom he foreknew. Those whom he'll redeem 
as the gospel is shared with them in love to the praise of his glory. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we uh, in some ways grapple and struggle with this doctrine, which in so many ways is quite difficult, but in so many ways should lead us to bow in humility before you, but then also give us the boldness of lions with the gospel uh, in this world, that we might say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that we can go out in great confidence because there are those, Lord, forgive us, forgive us when we feel as though and act as though it completely is dependent upon us and our wisdom and our great use of words or when we focus so much on people's hearts being far from you and in their thinking being far from you that we lose sight of the fact that it's the gospel and your spirit and your sovereign choice that bring the dead to life. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue through these doctrines of grace, not only, again, as I've prayed it before, that you would expand our thinking, but, Father, also that you would enlarge our hearts in terms of our love and devotion to you, but also for those, Lord Jesus, for whom you died that you have chosen that we might be used of you to call those from darkness into light. May the Lamb receive the recompense due for his suffering. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.